Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We know how to take a healthy young 18-year-old kid under discipline, under authority, and turn him into a killer. Well, hello there. How is everybody? On this, the 2nd of May time of recording. Just all coming out of a pandemic. Um, I'm in the studio here by myself because I love providing you all with great conversations. I assume that you train with my podcast or you go and walk with it. Maybe you go driving and listen to it. Perhaps you listen to it by yourself in isolation, considering we're in a pandemic. Maybe you're walking up Castle Hill, along the Strand, down at Bondi, Cottesloe. 200,000 downloads now, so chances are you're somewhere in Australia listening to it. And I want to thank you all for the support. We are killing it this year, um, which is great. And a testament to... All those people who've left a review, really, because that's that's how podcasts, I assume, gain more support, um, word of mouth, and the fact that I pretty much give out t-shirts and write you letters. Um, we've got a community, so thank you very much for that, and I'm just so glad how many people there are that are out there who have the same mindset that I do, that you're your most important mission, and that... Perhaps the secret to life is all about, you know, just self-improvement, discovery. I'm in the studio here by myself um, and just decided that I would put the Dave Crosman podcast up today. This week, we're sponsored by WHS Experts. So they've sponsored the program a few times before. And they reached out to me because they want you all to know that they're still providing HSE labour hire to multiple operational sites across Australia during the current pandemic restrictions. And of course, we're sponsored, as always, by Aussie Strength, my good friends Aussie Strength. Go and check out their website for some great deals on home gym equipment. They've been really busy, actually, over the last month, getting uh, all their back orders filled and setting up people's home gyms all over Australia. Um, I'm really impressed with some of their flooring and I'm going to be decking out my own home gym with some Aussie strength flooring in the coming weeks so I'll be sure to post that on Instagram and show you all. So, as I said before, my guest this week is Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grosman. Dave was a professor at the famous United States Military College, West Point. Prior to this, he was a soldier, uh, like myself, uh, a paratrooper, uh, yeah, I've done my fair share of parachuting. Um, it's not about you, Bram. 
He was an officer in the 7th Light Infantry Division. I think he was a company commander there, actually, and a graduate of Ranger School. However, he is most famous for his book on killing, the psychological cost of learning to kill in war and society. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about his book on combat as well. And we're going to talk a little bit about my leadership book. Um, This is about me. Uh, The leadership book that's coming out for Father's Day this year, which is now complete. And I've got some interesting and some very exciting news about that book and also some giveaways coming up in the podcast in the next few weeks. So listen out to that. All right. Let's have a listen to Dave Grosman talk all things on killing, on combat, resilience, leadership, a bit about parenting. And yeah, let's just hear what he has to say. Hey, Dave. Hello, Graham. <laughs> How are you? Doing well, brother. Doing well. How about yourself? Yeah, not too bad at all. Are you all podcasted out? Have you had enough? No, no, I'm up for it, man. I'm here to serve you any way you need. How's things happening over there in uh, Australia? How are you guys doing? Look, I think we're, we're going okay. The government was pretty quick to, to shut down the borders, keep everyone at home. We've been isolating, physical, physical distancing, yeah. but socially connected, I like to say. Doing a good job in Australia. Immediately getting the tail on the donkey with China. They, uh, the world needs to uh, rally around and uh, hold them accountable. And thinking Australia is one of the nation, one of the world's leaders in doing that. Mm. China is firing back at them. God bless them. Keep banging in there. Yeah, we'll see what we'll see what comes of it. I think it's a lot murkier than perhaps we're led to believe, but we'll wait and see. Your books on killing and, and on combat were instrumental really in my own development as a as a soldier and then as a, a junior officer in special forces it's really an honor to be a service to people like that bram mm. you know uh it's been a crazy time since 9-11 but mm. uh prior to 9-11 the only people in combat every day was law enforcement mm. I, I tell people that uh you know real world combat uh is the acid test you know in, in military and peacetime we're kind of like a, a a football team never plays a game you know, year after year, you never really get the acid test. Yeah. People in combat, like at that time was the law enforcement, the only ones. If something stupid, it gets people killed and uh, and it gets uh, flushed out of the system pretty quickly. If something works, it tends to hang around. Mm. And so all my research and everything that went into the first edition of On Combat was based, you know, on obviously historical military examples and current uh, law enforcement examples. Now, since the book is, since the war began in 2001 with uh, 9-11, uh, now it's it's again facing that acid test. Mm. It's really a great honor. Now here we are, almost twenty years into the war, mm. and uh, people still applying that. And it's it's a good feeling to be a service. You'll be an old retired geezer someday too, <laughs> and it's a good feeling to still be a service to the to the folks in the front lines right now. I was a young corporal in the Fourth Battalion Commando, and I read on killing in nineteen ninety eight, and then again. Before I went over to Afghanistan as a platoon commander, we read the platoon and I read on combat. And the reason that we went through on combat was because I wanted to know how to, I guess, inoculate my commandos against post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, we'll talk about that in a while, but I, I thought, first of all, I'd ask you around the story around the Civil War, which was really um, really poignant, I think, about how a lot of a lot of the Civil War soldiers were reloading their muskets over and over again, rather than actually fighting. Yeah, we we run into that. It's it's irrefutable, uh, and there's a couple of possible explanations for all of those loaded muskets and multiple loaded muskets. And uh, the one that doesn't hold up is uh, 
people say, well, you know, they, it's it's no good after the first loads of the, they, instead of pulling the trigger, they just keep unloading. Well, with those muskets, uh, I've done it myself. You, you, you touch off that first load, it just pushes all the others out of the barrel. It's still a functional weapon. Hmm. So uh, it's this this dynamic of not participating in combat throughout history is really bizarre. And uh, But we fixed that. We really have. Modern training has is, is, is fixed that. And, you know, I, I, you talk about inoculation. And the baseline for inoculation and for resiliency to prevent PTSD is be forewarned and forearmed. Mm-hmm. You know, how in the hell could we have had 500 years of gunpowder combat and not let people know about auditory exclusion? The shots will get muted in combat. I mean, how could this, how could this be happening? Five freaking centuries. Mm. And we're just not getting around to letting the guy in the front line know, oh, by the way, these are the kind of things that have happened. Tunnel vision, auditory exclusion, you know, slow motion time. And these things absolutely blow people's minds. Mm. I mean, it, it meets every definition of a psychotic episode. Huh. But the first step is is to be forewarned. Yeah. And then when these things happen, you say, whoa, I was warned that might happen. And so the, the psychological impact is so much reduced. But the other dynamic is be forewarned and forearmed about what happens after the event. Mm. And, uh, you know, the body, you can break the body in two parts for right now. you got the sympathetic nervous system, which is fight or flight, and parasympathetic, which is rest and digest, also called feed and breathe. Mm. So everybody knows under stress, the body goes to fight or flight, sympathetic nervous system. Everything else is shut down, total focus, you know, uh, dry mouth. You know, it, it, salivation is, is, a, is a rest and digest dynamic. You know, when we see food, we salivate. Mm. Dry mouth, the opposite of salivation. And so you, you get this total sympathetic nervous system arousal, then boom, when the danger is over, you crash in the opposite direction. Very often we gorge ourselves, and it's, it's real common, anybody in a, in a life and death event, to go home and have some pretty intense sex. We see this with all of our first responders. We see it with hunters. I got a book called On Hunting that will be coming out soon. Hmm. The only activity that consistently duplicates some of the impacts of combat is hunting. Hunters hmm. don't hear their shot usually. Their ears don't ring. And when you talk to them, they talk about going home at a deer camp with their spouse or their girlfriend and having some pretty intense sex. Mm. Firefighters, EMS, other people talk about this. But what, in a nutshell, what PTSD is, is a gunshot, a noise goes off, and suddenly you're over in that fight or flight mode again. Mm. And you go on that roller coaster ride again. Mm. That by itself is not PTSD. It's normal. Mm. PTSD is when you re-experience the event it scares the daylights out of you and you try to not think about it. Mm. You will literally drive yourself crazy trying to not think about it. So what we've got to do is separate the memory from the emotions. Mm. And one of the things that'll be in the next edition of On Combat, which is still quite a few years down the road, but I've got reams of info going to the next edition. On Killing's done, but On Combat continues to thrive and evolve. Mm. But one of the things we going in there is a, a technique that has taken off just worldwide to pull you from fight or flight to rest and digest. Also, like I said, feed and breed, right? And, uh, and one of the techniques is a big swig of water. So you start, your heart starts running, you start re-experiencing the event physically, you stop, take a big swig of water. Number one, it's a natural way to get people to breathe. Mm. And the breathing exercise is very powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, of all the things in the book, it's the most case studies in breathing exercise. Mm. Uh, save more lives, case studies, examples, but it also sends a powerful rest and digest message to the body. A friend of mine is one of our nation's leading uh, therapists for federal law enforcement. And uh, 
And uh, she told me, she said, she had uh, 14 years of practice, six years of college, mm. and that stupid bottle of water is doing more good than anything I've ever done. Is that right? We sit and talk about what happened. They become emotional. They stop, swig of water, wow. regain control, and keep talking. Mm. This whole dynamic of pulling people in fight or flight to rest and digest, another thing that's uh, happening worldwide in the ER, in the emergency room, they have a crackhead or a meth head tearing up the ER. You know what they do? They, they take a bag of M&Ms. They rip it open. They shove it in his face. Would you like some M&Ms? Mm. And a large portion of the time, it completely diffuses the situation and pulls them down from butterfly to rest and digest. Unless they were, uh, unless they were Australian Army Russian pack M&Ms, which means that they're all out of date by two years. There you go. There you go. But I, I'll give you an example on that. Uh, I'd be furious. I one of our uh, our leading uh, spec ops units, and my host there was a master sergeant. His wife was a uh, emergency room psychiatrist. Mm. He told me that she told him about this bag of M and M's thing, and he blew it off. Typical mm. cynical guy, blew it off. Said, "Yeah, sure, sure." This kind of guy carries a gun off duty, and uh, and in America, he's the kind of guy we want to carry a gun off duty. Mm. And he said two different times. I thought I was going to have to draw my gun and fight for our lives. And both times, my wife reaches into her purse, grabs a bag of M&Ms, rips it open, shoves the guy's face, which lacks some M&Ms, and completely diffuses the situation. He said, now, it's it's one thing when a pretty girl does it. I'm still not so sure it works for me. It's always good to have plan B out there. But this dynamic of pulling people from fight or flight to rest. Now, yes, a lot of people heard of CISM, Critical Incident Stress Management. I teach at their conference almost every year. We do a debriefing. We sit around, we talk about what happened. Yeah. We learned the practical lessons, we fill in the memory gaps, but now we've added one touch to it. Mm. Everybody has a bottle or a canteen of water in front of them. Is that right? And the minute they become emotional, they stop, take a swig of water, regain control, and keep talking. We used to so do that technique after combat in yeah. Afghanistan. My, my platoon and I would sit around in the uh, in the common room, we'd talk about, we would relive every moment of every bit of combat every time, and then I would give... Yeah people permission to to have pulled the trigger yes so i'd say good. thing i'd say things like hey man you know i, I know you had to kill that guy but i'm glad well, that he's dead and you're not amen well said but add one more equation piece of that mm. everybody has that bottle of water in front of them yeah i like it that's it that what you did that was classical debriefing yeah. and the most beautiful powerful thing a leader can do mm. I, and, yeah, well it's, it's the giving guys permission afterwards and, and letting them know that they've they've done the right thing at that moment after the coalface, I think that, that if any of the listeners can take anything away from what I learned through your books, it's it's um having well, that hierarchical having that hierarchical um pat on the back to say, you know, I'm glad you did that because if it wasn't if it wasn't you then then you'd be dead. I work with the police quite a lot doing leadership training and, and mentoring and one of the things we've been talking about lately is weaponizing emotional intelligence. So using emotional intelligence as their first line of defense. That's pretty clever stuff. What's that look like? Tell us about it. So weaponizing emotional intelligence is to understand that you've got the whole system that you can go through would end up being pulling a trigger would be the last resort. But prior to that, having emotional intelligence and then and then using the term weaponizing it makes them more likely to use it in a in a way that it is a weapon as opposed to a soft option they might go to a domestic violence call out and rather than go in there and be heavy-handed right at the start they might go in there and try and see both sides of the story and act to mediate but because it's in their mind as this is a weapon they're more likely to do that than not they're more likely to use 
something when you use the term weapon than not use it? Yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, you know, the words we put on things give so much power. Yeah, exactly. Especially as leaders, like you said, you know, in that debriefing, add that bottle of water, but everything else is perfect. Hmm. Tell him, you know, you did what you needed to do. I'm glad you're here. And he's not, you know, Hmm. beautiful. That's what a leader needs to do. And that's part of the purification ritual throughout history. You know, Hmm. we've got parades and awards and decorations and embracing of the returning soldier to home. But Hmm. that dynamic begins immediately after the incident in that debriefing. Yeah. That's where the greatest good and the greatest harm could happen. Can we profile prospective recruits to ascertain if they are more or less susceptible to post-incident trauma? You know, a lot of people have tried to do that. Mm. And there's there's a couple of factors. One, there, there's three variables in the equation. Mm. Uh, one is the magnitude of the trauma at the moment. The second is the purification ritual afterwards. Now, ahead of time, we can't do much about that. We plan for it. We set it up. But the first in- ingredient is previous unresolved trauma in their life. And there's great value in establishing previous unresolved trauma and getting peace with that and coming to peace with that. Yeah. You know, that's kind of a touchy-feely kind of thing for a lot of people. But if you've already got a lot of previous unresolved trauma in your life, hmm. they're, they're all, they amplify each other. So could you say, and would you say then, would you say then, Dave, that special forces by virtue of how difficult it is to get in. Most of the people are already being weeded out if they've got that trauma because they haven't been able to last through the selection course. So so we're inadvertently getting people of that caliber anyhow? To a certain degree. It's easy to bury that stuff. Uh, yeah, it's one of the things you're doing. Another factor is, uh, is intelligence. Now, you talk about emotional intelligence. It's hard to measure that. It's hard to quantify that. It's important. But we can measure uh, IQ, right? Uh, yeah. Intelligence, as we normally think of the word. And uh, and the research keeps stacking up that uh, uh, at a higher level of intelligence makes it a lot easier to process what happened effectively and to deal with it effectively. Hmm. In Vietnam, we had a a time there when they were drafting people that would have been rejected in World War II. They're Cat 4Bs. They're called McNamara's morons. McNamara's 100,000. 100,000 people. And and the idea was that the military is going to be a a form of social mobilization. Hmm. And these people have been deprived uh, by society and the military was going to take them and, and give them this mobilization, you know, and and, and we had a nasty war in uh, Southeast Asia going on at that time where they all ended up going to combat Mm. and they died at a rate many times greater than, uh, than normal people. Mm. And the the term was said to put it, put a stupid man in combat is, is essentially murder. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that applies afterwards, too. Not mm. only are they more likely to be killed, but they're more likely to be psychologically destroyed because of lack of ability to process and deal with these things. So these two factors ahead of time, intelligence and unresolved trauma. Uh, and as you said, the selection process is pretty powerful. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, I got to work with our, um, with our CAG selection guys quite a while back. Mm. I was at JFK Center, and I had their top psychiatrists and psychologists there, and I thought, okay, here it is. These guys are going to tell me the great secret that they're using to screen these people psychologically. What is What is it? And they said, well, you know, we use a, you know, you know, MMPI to, to phase out uh, you know, gross pathologies. The rest of it's kind of a seat of the pants. That's it. But they gave me a great example. They said, we had a guy who was making all of his, all of his, his points. He was doing good. But he'd come in after, you know, after making one of his legs and he'd throw down his ruck and he'd just be filled with this anger. And he was motivated by anger. 
and he did what needed to be done. He threw his ruck back on, goes racing off. But at every one of his points, he comes in. There's this this anger. Mm. See, we didn't want him. We had, that guy, that guy had had processed himself out of it. It's a no brainer to pull him out of the equation. Mm. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I don't know how we've evolved in the last ten years since that goes. But in general, if we use that kind of screening dynamic, mm. that kind of common sense dynamic added to selection. Mm. Now, there's a guy that had some unresolved trauma in his life, probably. His first response to everything is anger. And quite frankly, in the in heat of battle, when you need a cool hand and a cool head, uh, that, that's probably a person that we didn't need. Yeah. So that process of filtering for that ahead of time, but it's even more important to be forewarned in the event that minimizes the amount of trauma yeah. and after the event. I wanna... So that when you experience the event, it, you say, oh, I was warned this might happen. Yeah. Use my breathing, take a swig of water, regain control, and right. keep going. Because you've visualized it already. Yes. Yep. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you. I wanted, um, to, I wanted to ask you, you know, leadership in combat, what attributes does a leader need when the shooting starts that might be different than normal daily leadership? But I think I already know the answer to it because because I lived it after reading your your books. The difference is you've gone and created those movies in your mind of second, third order, worst case, most likely dangerous courses of action, all those things. So you've already seen it all. So you're not affected by it as much. So you're able to be calm under pressure. Does that make sense? You know, it makes perfect sense. Part of that too, leadership is to inform and inspire. Before you can inform, you have to be informed yourself. Yeah. You have to know that these things are normal. You have mm. to know that, uh, that these things are normal for you and for them. Uh, you have to be well-read. You have to be well-informed to be able to inform the troops to say that's normal. And, and to be able to sit around afterwards in that debriefings and know that it's a good thing to say. Hey, you had to kill that guy. I'm glad you did. It was you or him, and I'm glad you're here today. That's brilliant stuff. Mm. But without having been forewarned and forearmed, you know, it, it, it you wouldn't necessarily have known to say that. So be forewarned, and then to inform and, and to motivate and inspire. Mm. And, and to motivate and inspire, I'll give you a story. Uh, mm. You know, uh, I... Uh, I often get standing ovations from classes. I, I went to Spain and uh, my book had just come out on combat. I presented to 200 Spanish officers all day long. They were Spanish uh, law enforcement officers, magnificent men and women. And, uh, and it, it, we had simultaneous translation all the way through. And at the end, uh, just leap your feet standing ovation with all these guys, magnificent people. But, but I, the foundation of that was this. I, I've been a young uh, a young sergeant, and I went to OCS, and I was young lieutenant, and uh, we went out on one of our first exercises at Fort uh, Lewis, Washington, and it was about the most miserable two weeks, one of the four or five most miserable times in my life. It rained every day and froze every night. We're out in the middle of that for a week straight. Mm. We all came in, and the division commander, kind of a legendary guy, two-star general named General Cavazos, and he brought all the officers and senior NCOs into the... Uh, into the base theater. First time we've been warm and comfortable in a couple of weeks. And, he, and for the life of me, I couldn't remember a lot of what he said, but one thing really stuck with me. Mm. He stood up and said, you have suffered for freedom's sake. When you go home and eat that meal prepared with love, we'll have a flavor that protected will never know. Mm. I looked to the left of me and there's my company commander, Captain Ivan Middlemas, hard man, special force, had a tear in his eye. Mm. 
looking the other direction, there's Sergeant First Class McGurk. He'd been a, a captain in Vietnam. He'd been reduced in forces down to enlisted rank. Kind of a bitter man with a tear in his eye. Mm. But back at the, at the general, and I thought, what's this guy doing? He's talking about things of the heart, from the heart. Mm. And people listen. Mm. And I, I had this moment. I said, I can do that. Mm. I want to do that. And, and it took years to really get to the point where you had the credibility and the skill to do it. And it's not easy, but... It's my prayer that everybody walk out of one of my classes and mm. yeah, I can do that. I want to do that mm. to, to inform and to inspire and to motivate. Yeah. And, and to do that, you've got to talk about things the heart from the heart. And that's yeah. really what you were doing mm. in those debriefs. You were one of the first, really one of the first people who started putting videos on YouTube um, of your, um, of your classes. And I remember thinking at the time, Wow, this guy's a really good presenter. I mean, since then, I've noticed that Americans are a lot less reserved than Australians when it comes to public speaking. Um, we could learn a thing or two. But also, I think more than that, it was an um, authenticity that came across. And I think that's one of the things that leaders often forget, in, especially in infantry, is they get taught to lead a certain way in the officer school but actually, what their men really want is um, authenticity, men and women. What they really want is authenticity in the leadership. And if they can't, if they're not authentic, then then, then they're not going to be able to motivate them to go into combat. And that's a hard thing to do. How do you get that authenticity? How do you create that authenticity? It takes time. Well, it's either and, through it's either through being a patriot, being motivated yeah. by spirituality, or believing in a cause greater than yourself. I think it's the only yes. way. Oh, man. Mm. That, is, that is just so well said. Mm. You know, my next book is coming out just next week. It's on spiritual combat and patriotism, spirituality, motivated by a higher dynamic. Mm. That's a baseline of survival dynamics across the board. That's a baseline of motivation. Mm. When everything else comes apart, when everything goes to hell, fighting for love of your comrades, mm. But having this overarching dynamic of, of patriotism, of spirituality, mm. uh, yeah, you know, even just basic stoicism, mm. uh, a philosophical dynamic that can, can sustain yourself. Some of the best writing on stoicism was done in Australia recently. I think, and, uh, I think stoicism the- is the thing I can relate to the most out of all of that, to be fair. Mm. Mm. Do the current generation of warfighters require a different approach in order to achieve conditioned uh, responses, or is it all just the same as what it has been through every other generation? Or is it, or is it is there is there a difference now? Do we need to approach it differently to make them effective warfighters? When you talk about the baseline of conditioning, mm. when we talk about operant conditioning, stimulus response, stimulus response, mm. pop up targets, uh, you know, force on force scenarios, uh, that that's 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 pre battle veterans. We're creating pre battle veterans. Yeah, they're in life and death event and they die, they learn from it and they keep on fighting. You know, it's an amazing thing. It's almost like science fiction where you die and we resurrect you and we put you back in the fight. But that's what we're doing. We're creating this pre-battle veterans and, and the basic conditioning, the basic dynamics of that haven't changed. I think they're kind of eternal. They're kind of a, a, a baseline. You can, you can, uh, you can do it with rats and you can do it with humans, you know, basic operant stimulus response conditioning. Hmm. But it's higher level dynamics that we got to think about. Uh, is, is uh, uh, you know, uh, patriotism, 
really one of the motivating factors. And, mm. and, and, and one of it is we can't let go of it. Mm. But we got to recognize that the baseline is always love of your comrades. Mm. And, and we fight for them. And, and I'm glad you're alive. You know, that was so well said. I think that's very were, much part of the, the Anzac spirit yeah. that we talk about is that, is that mateship. And, and I, know what you're, I know what you're saying with regards to conditioning. And I've seen it go the other way as well, Dave, as well, where when I was in the tactical assault group, I, I guess that's equivalent to, to the sort of CAG CT team. I, I saw us wreck people because, because we were using um, paint rounds and they would be hit with these paint rounds from multiple directions, overwhelming stimulus. And, and I saw them realize at that point that if these were live rounds, they'd be dead. These people realize they get sensory overload. So you can go the other way as well. You know, that's one of the things I talk about in on combat is mm. to try to never send a loser off your training site. Yeah. Never send a loser off the training site. Yeah. I'm dead. No, you're not dead. I don't give you permission to die. Keep fighting. Keep going. Mm. Uh, you know, that's, that scenario didn't turn out the way we wanted to. We're going to run it again. Yeah. You know, send off this training site as a winner. And you're right. We can destroy people. We can overload them. I mean, and, and, and that comes back to a little ego thing mm. where the people doing the training says, I'm going to break this guy, you know, and well, anybody could do it. That's not achievement. Yeah. You've got every advantage on the planet. You can shoot them in every direction. You can set up the scenario. You're, you're just, you haven't proven anything except you're an idiot by destroying this person and defeating this person. Yeah. What it takes, what takes skill, what takes ability. We call it creeping excellence where, you know, they're doing it now harder than what we've ever done it. And we're going to make them do it harder each time. And, and we couldn't conceivably have done it as well as them anyway. Um, so, and that's true of so many military schools and military organizations. Mm. Where we keep getting harder and harder and we create this myth of how hard it was for us. And, mm. uh, and, and we've, got to be, we've got to be constantly alert to that. We, we do it with our Pathfinder school. We see it with some of the, uh, mm. with our, with our uh, jump master school in America, the Army jump master school, the, uh, mm. the Air Force and the Navy have set up their own jump master schools because the Army have been such pricks, mm. <laughs> such assholes that they've created a jump master school that nobody can make it through. Right. And and if you live if you're at Fort Bragg and you take jump master school a second, third, and fourth time, that's easy. But if you're TDY from somewhere else going to jump master school at Bidding or Bragg, mm. and you don't make it, you're an Air Force guy, Navy guy. Dynamic of of saying, well, it was hard for me, and we're going to make it hard for these guys. Yeah, that's that's pathological response. We have to be mm. guard against that and be aware of that. Yeah, it's because a, it's it's a whole lot of bias in that. Mm. I had this. I had this awesome question for you that I was going to start the podcast with, but I'll um I'll roll it out now. Yeah. Is, is the world more violent now than ever before, or have we been lucky enough to have lived in relative peace, but we just don't know it? Yeah. Within our societies, we're in the middle of stunningly violent times. Really, like you didn't seen before. The thing to understand, and this is terribly important. I um. Last August, I was at our vice president's office in the White House briefing him. And uh, medical technology is holding down the murder rate. Mm. Now, right about the year 2000, we had one good data point, one good research that says, as of the year 2000, if we had Vietnam-level medical technology, mm. the murder rate would be three to four times what it is. The right. development of technology since then is astounding. Because one medical because expert says keeping, tourniquets alone. 
Right, because they're keeping assault victims who would otherwise be murder victims alive. Yes. Mm. Tourniquets alone in the last decade in America mm. have cut the murder rate in half. Wow. Every cop carries a tourniquet. EMS for saying, do slap on a tourniquet. Now, this is new technology, right? I'm coming out of the war. Yeah. Cop slaps on a tourniquet, saves a life, he's prevented a murder. Mm. Yeah. And so, and so if, if just 20 to 30 people a day slap on a tourniquet and prevent a murder, we cut the murder rate in half. In just your, the last decade, that's pretty much what's happened. Your book so, on killing went right into the technical details per country, per capita of, of murder rates. Um, but I can't find that anywhere on the internet anymore. Yeah. You know, in, uh, uh, in my book, Assassination Generation, yeah. we updated Assassination Generation. We, That's right. We updated. In my presentations now. Had all the tables in there, didn't it? Yeah. But in mm. my presentation now, I do some stuff. Latin America is at levels of violence we have never seen before. Mm. There was a time in America when you pop across the border to Juarez or Tijuana, have a nice meal, do a little shopping, ain't nobody popping down to Mexico for meal and shopping no more. Nobody can deny that Mexico and all of Latin America is at levels of violence we have never seen it before. We've never seen it like this. I, I told the vice president, you know, when we talk about money, we talk about inflation-adjusted dollars. Mm. We compare money over any period of time. We're lying if we don't allow for inflation. In the same way, when we talk about murder, got it. You talk mm. about medically adjusted murders, mm. and it will absolutely transform the way we see our world. So what's now, doing? What's... You saw in, in uh, on killing on combat. Yeah, those charts and tables. Uh, as of right around 2003, mm. Interpol stopped collecting that data <laughs> because because the nations didn't want people comparing between nations. And I guarantee it's worse now because better they'd be saying so. So what's creating uh, it, Dave? What's creating what's creating this violence in culture? I believe with all my heart, we know absolutely what it is. Hmm. It's it, violent visual imagery, especially the video games inflicted upon children. My right. new book, Nation Generation, talks about it. It is worldwide. We know how to take a healthy young 18-year-old kid under hmm. discipline, under authority, and turn him into a killer. Right. We'll just take his response. When we see the same thing being done to kids around the planet indiscriminately, it should enrage us. And we and we hide it, and we, we hide the magnitude, and the media hides the magnitude of the problem by saying, look, the murder rate's down. No, it's not. Mm. <laughs> Medical technology is holding it down. Mm. You know, London London, and across England now, this year England's had knife murders at rates they'd never seen before. Mm. Well, we got rid of guns, so the problem's gone. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not what's in their hand. It's what's in their head. Mm. And, and so there's, there's a new dynamic in play. And those of us who've been trained to kill, those of us who understand it as a conditioned response and mm. under stress, when we see it being done in indiscriminate children, it should concern us. And and the thing is, adults can handle this stuff. Mm. Nobody is nobody's saying adults can't do this stuff. Mm. But it's, it's it's feeding this stuff to children that should concern us. You know, mm. tobacco, alcohol, firearms, automobiles, sex, drugs. Mm. Those are all things they say adults can have and kids can't. Mm. And violent visual imagery, especially the, the, the combat simulator video games, mm. uh, especially the point and shoot uh, uh, first person shooter video games. That's mm. something that we have got to protect children against. God, it's only going to get worse when they go into um, virtual reality. Yes, mm. yes, exactly right. And we're seeing that. You know, it, we're, we're training with virtual reality. We're training knife killing now. Mm. You know, it's one thing to train gun killing, point and shoot, but to get up close and train <sighs> knife killing. 
Jesus. That becomes virtual reality and other the new dynamics going on out there and the desensitization and, and one other factor is in play. Mm. You know, we've we've got the, the the bullying. You know, two people face to face is one thing, but talking or text messaging. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. People will say things and do things by email that they would never do face to face. Yeah, that's right. And, and so there's a level of bullying and a level of viciousness. And, and here's the thing. The video game may not have turned your kid into a killer, but it can turn them into a bully. All of us, even mm. the ladies out there, when we were kids, we played toy guns. Bang, bang, I got you. No, you didn't. Mm. You smack with your cap gun. It leaves a mark, and he mm. cries. If I gather around the hurt kid and try to convince him not to tell mom. Mm. In a football game, basketball game, somebody gets hurt, the, the fans go silent, the play stops. Mm. In healthy play, whenever somebody gets hurt, the play stops. Mm. In the video game, you, you blow your playmates' heads off and explosions of blood. They beg for mercy. They writhe and scream and bleed. Does the play stop? No, you get points. Mm. This is pathological play. It's dysfunctional play. Can we not tell the difference between healthy play and somebody gets hurt, the play stops? Mm. And the murder simulator where you're you're rewarded for inflicting death and suffering on your playmates. Murder simulator. Then you add to that the bullying dynamic wow. and the sleep deprivation. Yeah, yeah. And we've got a pathological tale out there. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, I've done a lot of research on sleep and, and sleep deprivation. And for me, you know, sleep, sleep is actually a weapon. If you, if, you rearm, yes. if you rearm often, you are more productive. You can be more effective on the battlefield with more sleep. Sleep is a weapon. So if you take sleep away from someone, then they can be in more of a comatose state. Yes, and Bram, there's, there's two other dynamics on sleep. Mm. Sleep is one of the greatest predictors of suicide. Huh. And it's one of the predictors of traffic deaths. Is that right? Uh, the U.S. Army research showed that a, a sleep-deprived soldier can be up to five times more likely to take their life. Is that We've right? We've had a worldwide epidemic of, of suicide, mm. teen suicide, teenagers, call them teenagers, 10, 11, 12-year-olds. Teenage girls' suicide rate in America has tripled per capita in just the last decade. And similar events are happening worldwide, virtually everywhere. And lack of sleep is a precursor to that. Yes, and here's the key. Hmm. To take your life is not a natural act. No. Every living creature has a drive for self-perpetuation, self and you have to have profoundly impaired judgment. Hmm. Alcohol creates impaired judgment. Alcohol and suicide have always been related. Alcohol creates impaired judgment, make hmm. a bad decision. Never had a chance to rethink it. The mm. data is overwhelming. Alcohol and suicide very powerfully related. Mm. But the, after 18 hours without sleep, you have impaired judgment, equal to 0.08 legally drunk. After 24 hours without sleep, your impaired judgment, equal to 0.10 above legally drunk. Mm. After two nights without sleep, you are psychotic. Any graduate of Army Ranger School went to hear about hallucinations on the third day without sleep. Yeah, that's right. And, the video games, the text messaging, the social media. Yeah. We have created this epidemic of sleep deprivation. Yeah. That we know that sleep deprivation, alcohol are the two greatest predictors of traffic deaths. Two greatest killers of our cops, of our troops, of our kids, 
traffic deaths and suicides have exploded. If we gave a damn, if we gave one hoot in hell mm. about suicides and traffic deaths, the first thing we'd do is lock down on sleep. Yeah. A Sergeant Major told me, and here's a great example of good leadership. A Sergeant Major told me we, we went on deployment and it was lights out after 10 o'clock. Mm. And I told him, if you're up after 10, playing your video game, we're going to take your damn video game. The Sergeant Major said in the first week, had a closet full of video games. They could not not play those games. They're good troops. Mm. They obey orders. The addiction to those games is so powerful. Yeah. There's leadership. A set, a set a curfew, set a timeout. Every pro ball team on the planet, uh, it's lights out the night before the game. And set a curfew. And if they're playing games, take the damn games away from them. Yeah. And we got to do it. Because the addiction is so powerful. Mm. That's leadership. Mandate sleep. Enables one other factor is the opiate epidemic. Now, prescription opiates, at least, have always been there. Why yeah. are opiates suddenly the drug of choice worldwide? Sleep deprivation creates chronic pain. The tendon is a muscle and they give a chance to fully relax. Mm. And the mega doses, the mega doses of caffeine after lunch. Mm. stops you from getting deep cycle sleep. Mm. Again, the tense the muscle never a chance. I heard all the time, give me a pill of fiction. I need a pill. I need more sleep. Mm. I needed to off the caffeine shortly after lunch. Yeah. They stop you in the deep cycle sleep that you need. If, so this, this, this dynamic of a worldwide epidemic of sleep deprivation is if, tied in with an explosion of suicide, traffic deaths, and drug overdoses. And, and, and it's, it's worldwide. There's one new factor in the equation. It, and it's, it's eating mm. us alive. Oh, it, it's just incredible. When you put it like that, you know, it's like the perfect cocktail. Yeah. Exactly right. If, um, if we've got such an issue and, and if we are creating, you know, uh, or almost creating, let's say we're creating killing machines in our military anyway, um, and we want to do that. We let's say we want to do that in some way. How do we ensure morality in that in that new generation of especially special forces soldiers? How do we? And I, and I say special forces especially because we're asking them to do a lot of the heavy lifting and a lot of the more discreet and targeted killing. How do we ensure morality? And and you and I'm saying that coming from a place where I think. We've seen recently in Australia that perhaps perhaps that morality is something that we haven't paid as much respect to that we should have from a uh, understanding that we're going to be putting people into positions where they're going to be killing as a living. How do we ensure morality? You know, we've trying to be diplomatic yeah, with that that question. It's that, hard. Uh, we've had this challenge throughout history. Mm. We take our young warriors, give them state of the art tools to kill people, state of the art training to kill people. We take them to distant lands. We give them years of practice killing people. Alexander the Great, the Roman Empire, the British Empire, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam. We face the same dilemma. Mm. We take our young warriors. We give them state-of-the-art tools, state-of-the-art training, years of practice in killing people. And we take them home. What's to stop them from using their skills on their own people? And every warrior society has found the same solution. And it works. Mm. Discipline, discipline, discipline. Mm. Every warrior society had distinctive haircuts, distinctive unicorns. You know, it doesn't matter what your hair looks like. Grow it out, cut it off, grow it out, cut it off. We don't give a damn what our hair looks like, some flaky freaking fashion model. What happens is what matters is submission to authority. Right. Whatever the hell the standard is, uniform standard, haircut standard, whatever the hell the standard is, 
we enforce it. When I train my military units, I tell them, you sergeants, you are the guardians of the safeguard. Whatever the hell the standard is, we enforce it. Mm. And that's the safeguard. And it truly does work. Alexander the Great, the Romans, the British Empire, World War I, World War II, the current war. We do not have any problem mm. with returning warriors coming home and abusing their skills. It's almost non-existent. Mm. I, I, the, you, you know, we run into one or two. He was a truck driver and he'd been dishonorably discharged. And the, the, this myth of the returning veteran committing these horrible crimes. You know, the one that committed that massacre in the mosque in New Zealand, the one that committed the massacre in that island in Norway, the ones that are committing these mass murders in America. None of these people are veterans. No. The truth is a returning veteran is far less likely to commit a violent crime than a non-veteran. What about... Um, I'm trying to <clears throat> trying to be a little bit diplomatic about it because it's in the news at the moment and it's all hearsay. But what about that soldier, that special forces soldier, let's say, in the in the arena in combat at the time, who has been who has been programmed to see the enemy as as less than human, perhaps, and they and they will just kill them. So they're in a combat zone. They're not necessarily they're not necessarily returned home. Yeah, the morality we around. Have- you know that me life sort of sort of example is the easiest yeah. one that I can make at the moment without um in, in without nineteen going into years specifics. of war in, in nineteen years with two wars and we've had one incident of an American soldier committing a terrible mass murder mm. it, it, you know which is kind of hard no nation with that population could 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 claim the same that only one one's one too many mm. we've had some cases of our spec ops warriors that uh that have been held to a very high standard. The president, uh, the president has pardoned one of them in one case. Mm. There is a dynamic in the military to, to for our leadership to become a, a bit of a holier than thou dynamic. I don't know the specifics in there. Mm. Uh, somebody may have crossed the line, and it's it's a it's a it's not a line. It's a big gray area. Yeah, for sure. Somebody may have crossed the line, but it it. it those cases being held to the highest standard, I think maybe too high of a standard. I think the president did the right thing in that case with the limited knowledge I have of the situation. Mm. But there's this dynamic being held to too high of a standard. And I know within our, within our military legal system, there is a powerful dynamic to get a conviction. Once mm. you've been charged, you know, instead of you know, having the, this, this dynamic of the, you know, it's their job to prove your guilt, it suddenly becomes your job to prove your innocence. And yeah. that turns our judicial system on its head within the military judicial system. There is mm. potential for people. And, and I think there was real abuse happening with the prosecutor. I think there was evidence that wasn't uh, revealed. There was evidence that was withheld. There was borderline criminal activity by the prosecutor to get information. Mm. And, uh, and, and it was just a, a tragic case. Uh, yeah. But so these borderline incidents in 19 years of war that pop up are incredibly rare. My, my most recent book, again, coming out just a week on spiritual combat, I talk about how combat develops mature individuals. Mm. You know, World War II, we had the greatest generation. Yeah, And at sure. most, for the Brits and the Aussies, at the most, World War II was five years. Mm. Napoleon's old guard. You know, at the very most, the old guard for Napoleon was 11 years. Mm. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. And uh, the one thing left out of the movie was uh, the hobbits come home and they have what's called the scouring of the Shire. Critical part of the book, at the end of the book. And these hobbits who have gone to war, they're steely-eyed, hardened veterans. They come home and they see the evil has gotten a grip in home and they sort things out at home. 
oh, that's really the story of the veterans coming home from World War II. It's, yeah. it's a powerful dynamic. And, and I'm a big believer that these veterans coming home, that a new greatest generation are rising up. And, uh, and that the capacity for good to be done by these veterans in, the, in this coming generation of 19 years of war is astounding. The, mm. the abuse that they've done, the, the violent crimes have been almost non-existent. They've been held to an extraordinarily high standard. And they are new greatest generation at home and abroad in these violent times. Mm. We're being forged in the fire. And I believe that. Yeah, I do too. I, I saw some amazing, you know, the gen- generation Y that I, that I took you know, I'm Generation X. I took Generation Y to, to war, and those guys were, were incredible, and they did everything I asked of them. And to be honest, they made me look better than I made them look. In your mind, is there a difference between mental toughness and resilience? Are they two separate things? Yeah, it's really hard because different people have different definitions of mm. resilience and, and mental toughness. Mm. But I'll give you an angle. So I think it's very important. Um, you may have heard that America, 22 veterans a day take their life. Uh, you can tell that's accurate. You've got to understand, the word veteran means anybody you served in the armed forces. My God, you and I talk in the same language. <laughs> yeah, so, so in, in uh, the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, we drafted everybody. Yeah. Elvis Presley was a veteran. Elvis served for two years. Mm. Most of those suicides are... 70, 80, 90-year-old men. Yeah, but it doesn't and, look and, it doesn't look as good when the when the population of the country hear a veteran and they find out that it, that that person was a veteran for 32 hours and then was discharged from their basic training. Exactly right. And they they count against us. Yeah. So this dynamic as of a couple of years back, mm. uh, 20 24% of adult American males are veterans. Mm. And again, there was a time when we drafted everybody. Everybody served for two years. Mm, but it doesn't so help. It doesn't help. But Dave, it doesn't help the not-for-profits when you start yes. making the distinctions between combat veteran and anyone who's ever served 24 hours or more. Yes. And, and so the <laughs> Vietnam veteran was spit on. I've just, I've just lost half my, my listening audience. <laughs> But, but you got to listen for their folks out there. got to listen. Yeah. And what I'm saying is important. A Vietnam veteran was spit on and called baby killer. Mm. It really did happen. Mm. Now they're damaged. They've been destroyed by the war. They're all suicidal, uh, PTSD riddled nutcases. But the truth is just nonsense. Yeah. You know what? It's nonsense. Uh, that I do my presentations. I show, uh, uh, I just, I have a document camera and I slip, I put pieces of paper in a document camera and, mm. and here's a screenshot from the Veterans Administration. It basically says 5% of the American troops in Iraq and Afghanistan contracted PTSD. You know, I, I, I present at national and international psych conferences. The British psychiatrists are, are, you know, come up and say, well, you know, the, the British troops are in 5% PTSD. Why are the Americans so much higher? They're not. Mm. But there is a myth that they're suicidal, homicidal, PTSD-riddled nutcases when the truth is just the opposite. No, they're not at so all. It's, mm. it, it's anti-war propaganda. The Vietnam veterans were called baby killers, and now they're damaged goods. And the mm. truth is just the opposite. Mm, and whether you call them villains or victims, it's an equal smear of our veterans, and they deserve better than that. There is a 5% who contract PTSD, and they need our help, and we'll be there for them. Yep. There are those who go across that line, and, and we'll be there to hold them accountable. Mm. But the vast, vast majority are coming home stronger from the incident. And the, uh, this myth, you know, we've got 3 million Americans been in this war. 5% of 3 million Americans with PTSD is a lot of people. They need our help. We'll be there for them. Yeah. 
why keeping the veterans who think that's something wrong with them because there's nothing wrong with them. Yeah. And we got to understand that. Man, uh, Dave, I absolutely love what you've just said because, and I'm not afraid to say it to, to my audience and I never have been. You know, I think post-traumatic stress is something where you have gone through an absolutely horrendous ordeal where you thought your life was in danger and, and, and you have a response to that. The whole of society thinks that veterans are, are have all got PTSD or damaged. Everyone who, who messages me on Instagram or who follows me and follows the podcast and writes reviews or talks to me, you know, if they're a veteran, all I'm ever seeing out of them is shining examples of how to do and say and be the right thing after you leave the military. There's some incredible people. Very, very few people I know are trying to rot the system. And anyone who I do hear trying to rot the system, I try and hold them to account. Like you say, that small percentage of people that do have a problem, well, then we, you know, we need to help them. Yes. Mm. And the other thing to understand, we're darn good at treating PTSD. Yeah. We get better every day. Mm. Every year, we have hundreds of thousands of cases we treat, recover fully or stronger with experience. Mm. You know, there's a myth in the in the psych community that PTSD is an untreatable disease. No, it's not. Mm. And, you know, I'll, I'll have a conference. I'll be speaking to a couple hundred shrinks of every different flavor from around the world. And so how many people in this audience personally know cases where PTSD were treated and recovered fully? <laughs> the majority of the hands go up. Mm. I say, every one of you putting your hand up is poking a finger in the eye of the lion dog that says PTSD cannot be treated. Yeah. So that, that the political statement is not a medical statement. They're, they they all have PTSD. They've been destroyed. They never recovered. The price war is too high. Well, the price war is high. One of the things that I've noticed in in the last few years talking to people that do have post traumatic stress, they all seem to have one very interesting thing in common, and that was that someone above them made a decision that affected them or made the wrong decision that affected them. It wasn't necessarily in their hands to control. It was someone else controlling how the trauma occurred. Yeah. Whether that means they were helpless. Yeah. Mm. And it's interesting because the only time I've ever felt disturbed by anything to do with killing at all, and I mean, I've been around my fair share of it. (laughs) The only time I've ever felt disturbed by any of it was years ago. And I mean, I'm a Somalia veteran, by the way. So I've seen, I saw a lot of death at 19. So, but the only time I ever felt uncomfortable by seeing it was seeing it on, seeing a Chechnyan rebel cutting a Russian soldier's head off on a video that someone emailed years ago when, when emails first started coming out with videos in them. And I remember feeling helpless for, the, for that poor young soldier who was the same age as me, whether he's Russian or not, that was neither here nor there. It was just a young guy that I could relate to. And I had absolutely no way of protecting that person or stopping what was about to happen. And that to me felt like that could be a type of post-traumatic stress. You know, you really nailed something. In my book on killing, I talk a lot about atrocity. Hmm. And, and I drew from several books. One of them was Rape of Nanking. And the lady who wrote The Rape of Nanking committed suicide. And wow. two different people who wrote definitive books about the Nazi atrocities committed suicide. Hmm. So, you know, there's these people who, who view evil. They look right at it. They study it. They look at the photographs. They, they look at the movies. They write the definitive book. And then they kill themselves. Wow. And so this one lady was interviewing me. And she said, well, you know, have you been affected the same way? And I said, no, because I'm a warrior. 
Yeah. Those people, they were sheep looking in the eyes of the wolf, and they were destroyed by it. I'm, I'm a sheepdog. I'm a warrior. When I see evil, I'm motivated to take action, to prepare myself, to train myself, to equip mm. myself. Uh, and, and that's all the difference in the world is how um, we can respond to those things. I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you a couple of copies of um, of my books, Dave. And the first one I wrote is called The Fighting Season, and it's it's based it's cathartically and loosely based on my experience in Afghanistan and with a whole lot of fiction thrown in. The second one's called Off Reservation, and in it, the protagonist meets meets this woman in a bar who's a CIA agent. And I remember reading about sheepdog, sheep, and wolves, and and I've woven that into the into the narrative with her saying to him, "Does he want to be a a sheep or a sheepdog?" Um, but I but I also had a little bit of a spin on it with with regards to the wolves, and I, I heard you talking. I heard Andy Stumpf talking to you a, a little while back on a podcast. And I don't think he articulated what he was trying to say quite right about the sheepdog and the sheep and the wolves. And it's interesting, or maybe he did, but maybe I've got a different spin on it as well. And I understand exactly what you're saying. You know, we need more sheepdog. We need more sheepdogs. We need to train people to be sheepdogs. Interestingly, there's a lot of symbolism in the Australian military around wolves and wolf pack especially in the unit where i come from so the strength of the wolf is the pack and i understand what you're saying with with regards to the 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 way the wolves work analogously how they pick off the weak and and this that and the other but i also see a sort of um a warrior in the wolf and i mean in the wolf protecting you know good wolves protecting against bad wolves and i know that sounds so crazy but there's yeah, some the, the sheep you can take the metaphor wherever you want yeah it's not carved in stone and uh, i love yeah. don't get me wrong though dave i love dogs and they because yeah, they uh, you know uh, if a dog yeah, a, a lot of people have seen the capacity for violence in themselves yeah they think I, i'm a wolf and i say well have you ever harmed an innocent creature have you ever mm. murdered an innocent person well no i think every sheep dog i think every sheep dog it looks at that little lamb and said, that would really make some great lamb chops. That mm. little lamb would taste really good. Mm. But the sheep don't attack that lamb. They won't. And a lot of them say, that guy needs killing and someone needs to do it. But they don't. And they don't mean they're wolves. You know, because they, the, the, the defining, their defining act, mm. it's a hard and fast line. If you use your skills to kill innocent people. Mm. Uh, and, and, and you say, I've got the capacity. I've looked in my own eyes. I see the the capacity of our violence in me, I'm a wolf. You know, again, using our definition, just a metaphor. Mm. If you use your skills to 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 kill innocent people, then you've gone across the line. If the if the sheepdog kills one of the lambs and has it for supper, then that sheepdog has gone over the line, and the, and and we we got to deal with them immediately. Uh, and people see the capacity for evil in them; they think they're sheep, they're, yeah. they're wolves, and 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 that's the de- definition, the defining line. Have you used your skills to harm? innocent people well said no and, and maybe that's maybe that's something that we need to think more about when we're looking at you know high-performing leaders developing high-performing cultures in is that be careful when people start to symbolize around wolves perhaps they're looking at something culturally that they shouldn't be looking at and what they should actually be talking about is 
you know, we want to be the, the sheepdog because of the, the following values. And these are the values that we want to have in our organization. Mm, I love it. Yeah. Funny, I've just now noticed that you had a uh, attached your, your next book. Ah, uh, yeah, and the leadership book. Mm. I will make a priority of pulling that up and taking a look at that and getting back with you in the next couple of days. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, look, I've had, I've had some great, I've had some really great feedback and it's, um, it's a, you know, we talked about leadership and, and authenticity. It's a very raw look at all the things that I've stuffed up through my career to learn from my mistakes. But one of, one of the people who I admired the most, uh, one of the, one of the generals in charge of Australian Special Operations Command read it recently and gave me some great feedback on it, which for me, it made it all worthwhile writing it. It took four years to write, to be fair. Um, it's a long time to write something just to get um, one letter of recognition. <laughs> but yeah, I'd, I'd be, I would love for you to read it. And I've, I've asked um, I've asked Stanley McChrystal to, to write the forward for it. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, you know, uh, I've got this book on hunting. Hmm. And we've been through three or four celebrities and high part people to write the forward of this book on hunting. And, 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 you know, they're just the way busy people are. There's a lot going on and they just didn't answer. Mm. And you, you know, you understand that, mm. but, uh, I, I have trouble because writing forwards, it's one of my favorite kind of writing. Mm. It's being asked to be the godfather for your child. It's not to be taken lightly. No, and, it's and not. Read the manuscript. And you accept that responsibility is not to be taken lightly. And it's no. an opportunity to, uh, to share mm. uh, uh, with the audience uh, yeah. uh, yourself. And, and it's one of the highest honors. And Can, so it, like, it, uh, it's just, you know, I don't know. I'm not always able to do everyone that asked me to, but, I, but I've done a lot. Mm. And, and if McChrystal didn't pan out or whatever happens, you find somebody else, you know, like that Australian general writing a couple of paragraph forward could be pretty high speed for you. Yeah, but if, if if need be, if I can be a service. Uh, oh, uh, thank you, Dave. I appreciate that. And you've made me. I want to keep you for two more minutes because you've made me think of something. I want to ask you two things. The first one is, um, why do I now feel? I always sort of feel like I want to go hunting. That's true. So since coming back from Afghanistan, I I want to go out by myself and just go walking whether that's with a rifle or whether it's with a um a bow and just and just disappear into the bush and the second thing i want to ask you about is that feeling that i used to get before well that feeling i used to get when i knew we were almost about to be in contact because the women and children were streaming out of the they were streaming out of the villages and then when the shooting started that amazing euphoric feel of um release there's a lot in that isn't there (laughs) well you know I tell you about the hunting. Yeah, uh, we really believe there's going to be a worldwide uh, increase in people who are seek hunting. Uh, it's ecologically a very powerful. I know uh, uh, in America we have Ducks Unlimited, which has done more good for 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 duck land and growth and terrain than anybody else. Everybody else put together. Mm. Uh, in Africa, you know when. Uh, you know, you've got the bull who's at the very end of his life cycle and, and the hunter is able to kill that bull. And then that, that they, all the money that comes with that goes to the locals. They're, they're motivated to protect it. I'm not doing a good job explaining this, but there's a dynamic in which hunting is one of the best things that can happen in those communities. And it's being done. Death in nature is a horrible death. Death of old age is terrible. You know, when, when the, the critter is, is, you know, hit their prime and, and they die, 
they're eaten alive in most cases. They're 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 diseased. They're eaten alive. They're in great pain. Mm. You know, the idea that somehow nature has this clean uh, mm. clean death of old age, like Disney, and you turn off the switch and boom, they're done at their prime. It doesn't work that way. No. So taking this 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 magnificent creature out when they're past their prime and they're and uh, and the, the village gets all the money, the nation gets all the resources from it. They mm. they they get the meat from it, and then they turn around and uh, and send the uh, you know the, the head is taxidermied, and off they go with vast amounts of money that this crazy American, this crazy Australian, has spent to come over here and whack this critter. Mm. It, uh, uh, it, it ecologically, we can see hunting as being one of the answers, and we give examples across Africa. Biologically, there is a deep-rooted need in us. That's what we did for untold hundreds of thousands of years. We were hunters. And, and, and the reason why we're the way we are, we're one of the very few mammals that can sweat across our entire body. You know, a dog, a horse stays warm over just their tongue. A dog stays warm with, you know, it's cool with just mm. their tongue. Well, our ability was to race creatures down across the African savanna. Mm. And, and we can literally run just about any creature on the planet to, to, to ground and then, and then kill them and eat them. Is it so an it, outlet? It's burned deep into us. And the only, thing, the, the only thing that taps into these dynamics you feel in combat, tunnel mm. vision, auditory exclusion, the only activity that taps into those dynamics other than combat is hunting. Yep. I think biologically... I think they are rooted together. They are closely interwoven. They are virtually inseparable mm. within our mind. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. When, we, when we hunt, we are tapping into those same dynamics. It can be very ecologically healthy. It can be psychologically fulfilling. Mm. I, I think uh, we, we put the data in the book on hunting. We put the information there to represent how pathological it is. Mm. Harmful it be for those that don't have the opportunity to hunt. I'm looking so forward to reading out, it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, what you're saying is about the desire to go hunting. Mm. It's a good thing. Mm. You're tapping into the same genes. You're tapping into the same neurons, the same hardwired process that's made us as a species who we are across untold thousands of years. It's a testosterone oh. outlet as well, I assume. Yeah. And, and you talk about the thrill you get just before combat. Mm. Now, obviously, nothing is ever going to equal that again. But the only thing that can come close, again, is hunting. Mm. When you see that, 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 that magnificent buck mm. and they come into your zone and you're ready to take that shot and everything comes together, mm. and there's a degree of excitement there. Hemingway said that if you hunted man... <laughs> All of their hunting is unsatisfying. Mm. And, and he, he, for him, it may have been true, although he did continue to hunt, and he, he almost proved himself to be lying in that initial statement by his own action. Yeah. For those who continue to, to use their, their hardwired dynamics, hunting can be extraordinarily healthy. I think it would be one of the most powerful forms of healing. When we pull that trigger in a positive way, when we walk down and honor the game that we've killed, mm. Uh, it's it's very healing. Use our killing skills in the way they were, they were meant to be. You know, I'm so humbled that you've made yourself accessible to so many people during the coronavirus lockdown, Dave. I think that's a testament to your character, mate. But um, one of the things I have noticed is how even now myself with a little bit of fame, we've had 200,000 downloads on the podcast and um and yeah it's it's doing pretty well and, and instagram's doing okay and it's all authentic you know growth and and even i'm overwhelmed now and, I'm, and i find that i can't get to every message that i 
that I, and I used to pride myself on answering every single person and now yeah. I miss stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I miss stuff. And and sometimes people say, hey, I'd love you on my podcast and they send me, They what they do is they send me a, um, you know, something that they've written and they've sent out to 50 other people and I just know it's not personal and so I just ignore it, you know, yeah. because it's not the same. Um, yeah, anyway. It's it's the price of <laughs> a little bit of a little of a little bit of fame, yeah. well, um, but well, you know I think you, I think you know what you do comes from an amazing place. You, you're as I said before at the start of the podcast, your your two books, your first book on killing really, I, I think it helped me through my own um, selection course and then and then knowing what I wanted to do in the, in the military. But but on combat was probably it was probably profound not just from my own personal experience, but in the way that I, the way that I led my soldiers in, in 2010 in Afghanistan in, in some pretty violent interactions with a very, very good enemy, I might say. And, and, you know, we, we came out on top, I think not just from the war fighting, but we came, we came out on top through a mental resilience position based on that book. And so for the other 30 guys in my platoon, I want to thank you for, for writing that book, mate. It was it had a profound, a profound effect on our lives. Graham, it was one of the greatest honors of my life to be a service like that. And mm-hmm. to your listeners, I tell you that 95% of the readers of On Combat, On Killing would say the same thing. On Killing's a good book. On Combat's a better book. Yeah. Uh, the other 5% don't hurt my feelings. But all <laughs> your listeners out there, if you're just going to read one book, mm. Uh, to, to you know, cut to the chase and put the nuts and bolts you need, and, and I would agree with you completely. Cut right on combat, mm. and uh, and that's the one I, I literally wrote for my son. He's got nine combat tours now. He's spec wow. ops, uh, and an early draft of that book was the one I literally wrote for my kid going into the fight. Wow, you know, that's the one I would want you to read if you're going to be in a life and death event. Yeah, and I think I think for our police officers in Australia, on on combat should be required reading. Mm-hmm. Well, my brother, thanks mm. for all that you do and continue to do. You're in the fight every day. You're rocking mm. and rolling, and uh, it's an honor to be a service. If, if you ever need me in any other way, give a call, and we'll make it happen. Yeah, I'll keep in touch. Thanks, Dave Grosman. Thanks for being on the Warrior You podcast. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Well, what do you think of that? Dave Grosman and Bram Connolly. Um, he's pretty cool, isn't he? And, you know, it's interesting because – some of his research really has withstood the test of time. Some of it maybe hasn't. Um, and there's been a lot of research in recent years, uh, especially in Afghanistan, um, around killing, combat and the like. So, yeah, it was a very interesting interview for myself and I'll be watching the future intently on on how... Uh, the research has changed, if it has changed at all. But, um, yeah, absolutely fascinating. Hey, listen, thanks, everyone, for having a listen. Really glad to have you with me. Please do go onto iTunes, give us a review, chuck it up there. You know, that that's the thanks that, that I would love from you all. Share with your friends. Tell one or two people, hey, listen, check out the Warrior You podcast. And thanks very much for all the personal messages about how perhaps I've helped you Um, or giving you inspiration or motivation. You know, you never know who you're motivating, so just keep banging it in day after day. Do your thing. Be your authentic self, as they say, and then, you know, you will attract your your tribe. Anyway, that's it for me. I'm going to go and spend the rest of the day out in the sunshine, uh, down the beach maybe, go for a run. All right. See you later, gang. Bye. 
If you're still listening, stop and go and write a review. I've already told you that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.